If you're still paying full price for your prescriptions, let us put you onto something better. Visory Health, a woman-owned prescription saving platform, offers up to 80% off on generic drugs through your local pharmacy, so you can take care of the people that matter to you the most at a fraction of the cost. All you have to do is download the app to get your digital health savings card, and voila, it's free to use, available for your whole family, yes, fur babies included, and you don't need coupons, discount codes, or health insurance. Go to visoryhealth.com, that's V-I-S-O-R-Y health.com to start saving today. Hello, and welcome back to Girl Boss Radio. I'm your host, Avery. I'm the founder and CEO of Bloom, a workplace design consultancy on a mission to build work that works for everyone. Today, I'm joined by Lauren Chan, a model, former magazine editor, and entrepreneur. She's the founder of Henning, an ethical luxury, size-inclusive workwear brand that was acquired by Universal Standard earlier this year. Lauren moved from small-town Canada to New York City to become a model. At the same time, she started working as a fashion writer, contributing to publications like Vogue and Interview Magazine. Then she stepped away from modeling and became a full-time fashion news editor at Glamour, where she pushed for size inclusivity in their content. While working in fashion, Lauren struggled to find plus-size clothes for work. This sparked the idea for Henning. And most recently, she was named the first queer plus-size Sports Illustrated swimsuit rookie. Lauren and I chatted about how she's creating a more inclusive fashion industry, why she felt ashamed to be a model, and the biggest workwear ins and outs. Let's get into it. Lauren, welcome to Girlboss Radio. I am so excited to have you here with us today. First and foremost, how are you feeling? I'm good. I'm so excited to be on with you, especially because as I'm looking at you, you are in Canada, my homeland. So it's making me a little bit extra happy today. It's so funny. This is the second podcast in a row where we've had someone that's from Canada. So there's that overlap there, which I love. And actually, it's a great connection and segue to the first question, which is, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh my gosh, I hadn't thought about it in so long because I feel like I've had so many roles within my career in the past decade. But I remember wanting to be everything from a marine biologist to a WNBA player to a dentist to a fashion designer. I'm super grateful that marine biology did not work out because I much prefer making clothing. (laughs) But eventually you moved from Canada and you moved to New York. And I'm curious, what inspired you to make that move? By the time I was over dentistry and marine biology in the WMBA, <laughs> I knew that I wanted to work in fashion and New York City is where fashion happens. It's the epicenter of North American fashion. And so it was an early goal of mine to move here and become a fashion editor. So I've had like the red X marked on the map from the second I graduated university. That's incredible. And I think that there's probably a lot of people that are listening in right now that feel like they need to make a move to perhaps pursue their career goals. What advice do you have for listeners that are maybe wanting to make a move for their career, but are too scared to take the leap? Well, I think as a Canadian who moved to the States, there's lots of advice I could give that is very technical because work visas are so difficult to acquire. And most of that advice boils down to carving out a niche and making yourself an expert in that niche because you need to prove to the USCIS that your job skills are so unique that this role must be outsourced to a foreign worker. But I think in general, whether you're crossing country lines or not, 
if you're keen to make a move for work, for anything really, for love, for fun, I would say that you should know that you can always go home, that it is not some big, final, terrifying decision that you could never take back. Try it. If it doesn't work out, there's no shame in going home. You'll feel comfort whenever you visit. And if you make the decision to permanently turn around, that is a-okay. When you moved to New York, you joined Ford Models, the modeling agency to be a part of. But what I also found really interesting is that you were working as a fashion writer, contributing to publications like Vogue and Interview. I'm curious, like, what was that transition like? So I always end up talking about visas for some reason, and I've got to find a way to kind of message <laughs> message outside of this because it can be so dry. However, it was this moment that, to answer your question, really changed the course of my career. So when I moved here, I wanted to be a fashion editor and writer. But as I said, I couldn't prove that my skill as a writer was so unique at the young age of 21 or 22, fresh out of school with no significant bylines. And my reverse thinking into that was that if my job skill was what I looked like, then technically that was entirely unique. And technically a modeling visa might be within reach. And so I had driven to New York City with my dad and gone to a Ford Models open call and got signed that day. Wow. Yeah. With that came a visa sponsorship and my ticket to New York. And at the time, I really was living two separate lives. So I was living a life wherein I was a plus size model, which all this time ago was largely commercial. I was working for Macy's.com, e-commerce, et cetera. It was not fashion with a capital F in the way that I had always pictured it. And the other part of my life was that fashion with a capital F. I wanted to get bylines in vogue. I wanted to intern at interview and I wanted to be in the scene. And eventually I realized that melding those two worlds was something that I could feel purpose doing, would carve out an expertise or a niche for myself and would be the most strategic for me to pursue. And so I did that. I started writing about plus size fashion and going to job interviews, explaining that I care deeply about size inclusion. And that is what gave me my niche within writing and editing. So I later landed at Glamour as the fashion features editor, visa sponsorship and all. <laughs> and that's really what I focused on it for a handful of years. And I know that there's like a lot of misconceptions and assumptions around the fashion industry at large, but I wanted to understand like in your experience, did you find fashion or do you find working in fashion to be a safe space for you? <laughs> Dramatic pause. Yeah, no, you're fine. Yes, yes and no. I think that the ways in which fashion has not been inclusive, I have chosen to see as an opportunity. And I have always thought, well, why wouldn't I take that opportunity? Why couldn't it be me to go make this a safer space or a better product or more inclusive content? At the same time, fashion has made strides in inclusion, but it is still not fully size inclusive. And actually, we're seeing a little bit of regression in the past few months here in terms of inclusion in fashion, in media in general. So the answer is twofold. And I think that I choose to see that as an opportunity. I love the reframe. I think that that's probably one of the reasons why you've been so successful. Speaking of your modeling career, I was quite interested to kind of understand that there was a point in your journey in 2015 where you actually put your modeling career on pause to pursue becoming a fashion news editor at Glamour. That was my dream job. 
I wanted to be a fashion editor. I wanted to be a print editor in chief. And so that was always the goal. To me, the early days of modeling were my means to that goal. And it was a no brainer for me to leave that behind. I mean, I think it's worth also saying that I didn't enjoy modeling. It wasn't fulfilling to me. It didn't make me feel accomplished. I was always a little bit embarrassed about saying that I was a model. And so I, uh, I happily left. And I know that you've shifted back into modeling now, which we'll get to, but I'm curious to further explore you talking about feeling embarrassed to be a model. And I'm just interested because I think that there's such a strong structure around shame as it relates to the work of being a model. We're even seeing this in influencer culture as well. But for you, how has shame played a significant role in your career to date? Well, I think that I've come a long way first, which I'm super proud of. But unfortunately, that was myself being insecure about doing women's work. Really, when you boil it down, it was me being insecure about being proud of participating in the beauty ideal and all that it perpetuates negatively within our society. And I really tried to distance myself from both of those sentiments by always having something else on the go, like writing or editing or later a business, because I felt that it was the crutch that made me sound level-headed and intelligent and not just a model. I've since done a lot of mental work on these feelings and thanks to a lot of therapy, I'm proud to now say I'm a model. I am so lucky that I have one of my gigs (laughs) that I get to go to and just have fun and be physically and mentally present with folks and behave like a kid sometimes. And moreover, have a job that allows me financially to do the passion projects that I care about, like my business or my writing. It's so interesting, the role that internalized misogyny and The system, the patriarchal system has a huge influence on what we consider to be work people can be proud of and work that we believe that people shouldn't be proud of. And this also extends to ourselves. What advice do you have for folks that are listening that feel shame about what it is that they do to earn a living? Well, first, I always say, pull the camera back, take yourself out of it and look at the situation on paper and say it out loud or write it down and try to recognize the loophole or the flaw in that shame. And so in my instance, I could say something to the effect of, I grew up in a world that told me to do anything to be valued like a model, have an eating disorder, spend all your money on beauty products, et cetera, et cetera. And then when I was a model, that same world also messaged to me to be ashamed because that is not a job for intelligent people. Or poor you, all you care about is surface level beauty. And when you look at it from that ridiculous lens, it's a catch 22. You can't win. And I would say that just knowing that has helped me. And I think that that same practice works in a lot of situations for me, whether I'm talking to you about work on a podcast or I'm in my personal life and I'm feeling frustration with a person or a situation or a gig. Pulling the camera back always helps ground me and reset my point of view. Yeah, I think that reframing how you're looking at a situation 
is super important. I've been practicing trying to see the bigger picture more. I feel like I get caught in the weeds a lot because I care a lot about a lot of different things and all the details. And it's so easy to get lost in that. We all have to ask ourselves where, when we feel moments of shame, where the root of that shame is coming from. Who or what made you feel that way? Do you actually believe that? And I'm thinking specifically of body image here because to me in my personal life and a lot in my work life with my work in size inclusion, you know, I talk and I have thought personally a lot about body image over the years. And I was able to start forming a healthy body image when I started challenging where the shame in being a size 14, not an hourglass came from. And when I noticed a change in body trends specifically, when our society went from super thin to curvy in the right places, back to super thin again, that's when I noticed that it's not absolute. They're literally telling us that it's not absolute. So to believe that it is, is nonsensical. And we don't deserve that. We don't deserve to live with the shame of that. I 100% agree. A book that I read by a writer named Adam Grant. It's called Think Again. It's in my top five favorite books. I'd recommend anyone who's listening to read it. He talks a lot about the power of changing your mind and how a lot of the beliefs that we hold, the values that we have, the opinions that we have are sometimes really part of how we're socialized and influenced by design. But also he talks a lot about how it's okay for us to shed these things. They're not a part of our identity. And what you're saying really deeply connects with what he shared in his book. Body image is such a personal thing for a lot of people. And it's okay if your body image is not linear and if it feels like a bit of like a messy map, if you will. Absolutely. I mean, speaking of the book that you mentioned, which I just pulled up on my Audible while you were talking, for me, a book that was pivotal in rethinking my body image was Sonia Renee Taylor's The Body is Not an Apology. And since I've recently come out, a book that helped me there was Untamed by Glennon Doyle. So those are two more books that I implore listeners to at least give a sample listen to on Audible. Yeah. I'm one of those people that buys the book and then listens to the audiobook. Uh, (laughs) You double support the authors. There you go. Yes. Yes. I'm a very supportive consumer of books. I will double down. And I always, if I really like a book, I'll buy it for people and share it with them. Hey, it's Victoria from Team Girlboss. We're coming up to the end of the season and we'll be taking a short summer break. But don't fret, we'll be back in the fall with more amazing guests and must-listen conversations. Our season finale is next week where the producers, that's me and Liz, talk about what it's like to work at Girlboss and what the word and the movement means now. We hope you tune in. You're listening to my chat with Lauren. Next up, we talk about what it was like to have her fashion brand, Henning, acquired by Universal Standard. Let's get back into it. So I actually wanted to dive a little bit into your career as a fashion designer. And you started this company called Henning. What is Henning and why did you start it? So Henning was the ethical luxury plus size clothing brand that I founded and was the CEO of for five years until it was recently acquired by Universal Standard. And we made luxury clothes locally in New York and on an on-demand basis for sizes 12 to 26. 
from a mission standpoint and a why me as a founder standpoint, I had just come off of years as a fashion editor who wore everything from a size 14 to 20 during that time. I was at fashion shows interviewing designers. I was in meetings with the most iconic editors you can imagine. I had accolades like print covers and Good Morning America segments, you name it. But I still could not get dressed. I was doing all these things, wearing forever 21 plus sizes, because that was all that was available at the time. And I grew sick of the disadvantage I faced. I started becoming very aware that in these rooms with these folks, I was othered by what I was wearing. And I wasn't one of them to them. And I really just knew there was no way I was alone, that there were people who wore above size 14 who were also editors, but were lawyers and politicians and doctors and public speakers, et cetera, et cetera, who probably felt the same way and needed clothing to show up at work at and be perceived as as capable as they were and therefore be given opportunities that they deserved for better lives. So I can hear myself getting heated about it because it's such a passion point for me, but that was the impetus for Henning. What I love that you did is that you took your own real challenge and your own real pain and you turned it into something that could actually solve other people's challenges. Unfortunately, there's real bias around the way that you present yourself. And we know that fat phobia and people that exist in larger bodies experience discrimination. We see this through clothing and then physical spaces. It's really, really disheartening. I have a huge level of respect for people like you that are wanting to go out and solve for this because it's such a widespread issue. Well, that fat phobia really is palpable within the fashion industry as well. And I think that's why we don't see a lot of success stories in the plus size category. Unfortunately, we see young brands who want to get into the space facing a dire number of disadvantages just because that's how the industry is set up. So think fabric widths that don't come in widths wide enough to make plus sizes, factories that haven't made up to size 26 before, retailers that don't buy above size 14, et cetera, et cetera, not to mention the lack of funding. And then we see veteran brands who either do make plus sizes or genuinely want to make plus sizes, but aren't able to innovate in this new direct-to-consumer, made-on-demand, ethical, et cetera, et cetera way. And then we have a bunch of brands who just don't want fat people in their clothes. And that is really what all of their reasoning to not making larger sizes boils down to. As we know, 70% of America are plus size shoppers, but only... 19% of apparel sales are plus sizes. And we sometimes get gaslit into this conversation to talk about plus sizes as if they're the minority. We're the overwhelming majority. The stat that we make up nearly 70% of the US population is years old. So I wager it's much more at this point. And I always kind of like to pull the camera back when I'm having conversations like this and reframe to stop talking about it as if we are the ones who should be othered or left out or marginalized because it is just statistically untrue. Exactly. And this works by design, right? This is society telling us to shrink, telling women to shrink. But in April 2023, Henning was actually acquired by Universal Standard. So huge pause and congrats for you, Clap. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Did you ever imagine another company acquiring Henning? Yes. Most startups these days are built with the goal to be acquired. And so for us, that was the goal. 
I am so thrilled that it was acquired specifically by Universal Standard. And to answer your question with an anecdote about did they ever think it would happen, I thought it would happen so strongly that in the early days of Henning, I worked with a branding agency who proposed that I campaign around New York City that said anything but standard with a capital S. And I said, no, no way. Because first of all, as a Canadian, I never, ever, ever get ahead by putting anybody down. And second of all, I had the wits about me to think, but maybe one day we'll work together. And why would I make an enemy out of a friend? And so good thing I did not run that campaign because now Henning is part of Universal Standard and it's the perfect home. We had a few conversations active about who the business would go to, but Universal Standard has been in my life for the past, at least, well, since it was founded. When I was an editor at Glamour, Alina Vexler and Alex Waldman, the co-founders, were doing early press meetings and I was one of the first ones to meet them, listen to their story and hear about the brand. The first one to cover it in print. Later, we worked together by way of me modeling for them. And also when they hosted a Henning pop-up within their showroom space and had me on some panels alongside Alex. And all of those relationships and experiences and moments proved to me that this was the right place. I have long believed in what they have done. They are extremely innovative. They're profitable year over year. They are inclusive. They are the most inclusive brand in the world. We make sizes zero, zero to 48 universal standard. I'm just so excited about it. I didn't even answer your question, but (laughs) you did. You did. No, I love it. It was the right home. And I'm so thrilled that this is how it turned out. People can't see me right now, but I'm like admiring you from across the (laughs) I just think it's so impressive. What did you learn through the acquisition process? You know, I was really nervous at first in these conversations about acquisition. I am an independent brand. I had a small team before COVID. And after the PPP loans went out, I unfortunately had to let the team go. And so I've been running it by myself since 2021. And that made me feel small and insecure and on the back foot. And I really had to do a lot of mental work and be able to access my pride and my accomplishments in a way that was not surface level cockiness in a way that made me feel deeply proud of myself. And regardless of how this situation turned out, happy with the work that I've done and the impact that I've had and the people that I've been able to connect with. And it's just surprising to me that in the end, that was the biggest lesson in the biggest business deal of my life. And I think that during this time in my life, I was super focused as well on mental health and about therapy and all of the practices that made me as well as possible because I was also going through a divorce and coming out and I just had to find a way to really be level. That was such a powerful reflection from that experience. And I'm really happy that you shared your vulnerability and kind of going through that. It's so interesting. Like some of the most successful women I know have been going through massive personal changes and shifts whilst coming to this point of like a massive career pivot or a really big accomplishment and now hearing yours. How did you navigate your coming out experience, going through a divorce? Well, it's also, to your point, navigating the biggest career deal of your life. 
I just couldn't help it. I couldn't help that I was working on selling the business and all these conversations were coming to a head around the same time that I was going through a divorce and realizing my sexuality and I just had to get through it. And I think that as I'm speaking, I can hear myself kind of saying the same sentiment of there was no what was me moment. There is no, oh, well, I can't do X because Y. We as women are more than capable of handling so many things. I mean, whether or not you're a founder in the news or a mom who's working or a student who's also trying to get a career off the ground, women are often painted in a way that they have to choose one thing or another, or that a few among us can quote unquote, have it all. And I just think we figure shit out. Yeah, we move through it. We face it head on 100%. What is your definition of success? My career has had multiple forms. I've been a model, an editor, a founder. Hell, I'm now Sports Illustrated swimsuit rookie. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. But I think that I've had a very clear through line. My goal has always been for my work to make folks who have felt on the fringes because of their size or race or identity feel included and served and powerful. And if I just keep shape-shifting with that goal in mind, I think that I'll feel successful. So we are recording this on June 13th, 2023. As of today, do you feel successful? I do. I do feel successful today. And I think that is because of a mix of things. The old me would say, I feel successful because I've had my dream job and I've had my company acquired. And the new me says, well, I've had my dream job and I've had my company acquired, but I made an impact and I was vulnerable the whole time. And I connected with people and made a difference. And that is what well-rounded success feels like to me. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. What's next for Lauren? Well, I am, as I mentioned, now a Sports Illustrated swimsuit rookie, and that changes my career a little bit. And that happened around the same time that the business was acquired. And so I'm in new chapter phase. And since I've also come out, I'm in new chapter phase personally. And I'm really excited about making work and experiences and product that is inclusive and celebratory and impactful. So that's what's up for me. And I wanted to do a quick in or out with you before we wrap up. And usually our in or outs, like for folks that listen every single week, they'll know that I ask specifics around in or out around specifically usually the workplace. But for you, I want you to actually define your top three in and out trends that you've noticed in the workwear space. So out heels by no. When we stopped going to the office, I stopped wearing heels in workplace settings. It's uncomfortable. Out with the torture devices. <laughs> also out for work in terms of trends. I would say uniforms. I used to be a uniform dresser, but since COVID and the nostalgia and individualism trends in fashion, I've really had fun with making clothing a little more personal 
And so I would say dressing like everyone else or dressing in the same uniform all the time is out. And oof, I'm really, I'm fashion editing on the spot. (laughs) I love it. I love it. I would also say that what's out is changing your outfit between day and night. And I remember a time where I used to have the heels in the bag, the sneakers in the backpack, a change of clothes for the subway home, and then a blazer to put on at an event. And I think that what's so cool about fashion these days is that individual style is so heralded that you can go to the work dinner without the blazer on, which I guess leads me to what's in. So I would say what's in in workwear is blazers. And that's biased because I just love blazers, my favorite fashion item. (gasps) It was the number one selling piece of my company and basically what I built the whole assortment around. So I love blazers. I think they're timeless, but I'm wearing them less so with suits and more so over, say, a crew neck sweatshirt and sweatshorts, loafers, or a dress with Birkenstocks or something like that. I would say what's also in for workwear is, for me at least in my life, still Zoom dressing. So wearing something a little more put together up top and a little more casual on the bottom. And the last thing I would say is in for workwear is denim because it really straddles the line of comfortable and casual, but in today's world, still more elevated than sweats or joggers. And I have a very plug surprise for you, wherein I would love to gift everybody listening a free pair of Universal Standard denim. So if you go to universalstandard.com and plug in your email, we will send you a pair of free jeans of your choosing. You just got to pay shipping. So happy working, happy denim wearing. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. I think you're totally right. Going to like the office and having multiple outfits for like my life in a day. And it just is so unnecessary. Oh gosh, yeah. That is a huge tip. And I'm so happy that it's out. I'm going to an event next week and I was going to get a hotel to stay downtown because I need to change my outfit. I can't be that dressy. I like, you know, I'm just going to wear the same thing all day and I'm going to sleep at home that night. So you just saved me like probably 400 bucks. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. But also Bonnie, your dog is probably thanking me because mom's going to come home at the end of the night now. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, Lauren, thank you so much. Before we wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to leave with folks other than that offer to get a free pair of jeans? Like, hello. Hmm. I feel like I don't know what else I've got to give (laughs) y'all. But thank you for listening. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you, Avery, for having me. If you want to follow along, I'm at LC Chan on Instagram because Lauren Chan, everything is taken. (laughs) So find me, DM me, keep in touch and let's keep talking. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you for listening to my chat with Lauren. She's doing the work to make the fashion industry more size inclusive. After we stopped recording, we talked for another half an hour and followed each other on Instagram. And I'm pretty sure I've made a new friend. Oh, and about the free jean promo. You can get a free pair of denim from Universal Standard by signing up at the link in the show notes. So we're coming to the end of this season of Girlboss Radio, which is one episode left to go. Tune in next week for a special final episode of this season. And until then, please rate this episode or leave a comment to let us know what you thought. As always, this podcast is produced by Liz Goober and Victoria Christie and edited by Diego Domine. Until next time, keep blooming.